0: Welcome to the Swamp Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede.
1: I'm Brittany Lombas.
0: And I'm James Cohn. And we are recording in three separate locations in New Orleans, Louisiana. This is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp And there's a lot to celebrate today. It is our five-year anniversary of this podcast, uh, six years of the website. And also, we are going to count down our favorite movies of 2020. I think the first episode we did back in 2016 was James and I doing the best movies of 2015. So this is us coming full circle again. We have way too many movies to talk about today. I guess I kind of want to ask you all up front, though, like, was there anything different about doing a best of the year list after all these months of the pandemic? Like, did that change your ritual in any way?
1: I will say that normally, like, seeing a, a film in movie theaters amps it up a little bit. So it was, I don't know, like, I found, like, this year, nothing really jumped at me 120%. And it was kind of very difficult for me to, like, compare all the films that I've seen. And I think that just has to do with, like, how my mentality was maybe during the pandemic, where I'm like, what am I super excited about? And what am I more super excited about? It wasn't, like, as clear cut.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with a 100%. Like, I feel like my top... Two or three, I was really enthusiastic about. And then everything else, I don't want to say they were interchangeable, but I wasn't as high on them as the few in the very top. And I think that had something to do with not seeing them in theaters.
0: I am exactly the same way. I'm looking at my like top 20 right now, and I believe seven of them I saw on the big screen with an audience, which is insane considering that there was only like two or three months where that was like a viable option. Um, So... Yeah, I think we're all hurting a little bit just from lacking that communal experience and lacking just the immersion in watching a film where you can't touch your phone, you're surrounded by the audio, it's dark, you know, like you're just like inside of the picture. Definitely been missing that.
1: Yeah, and even watching movies with like your your friends and stuff like that, like that didn't happen this year either. So there really wasn't a lot of like as you're watching a movie, you can like chit-chat with everyone. And that does like amplify the the movie experience for a lot of types of films, you know. So that wasn't there either.
0: I miss our movie of the month uh, meetings too. Once a month, we would all sit in a living room and watch a movie together. It's it's missing from my life.
1: I know, which is very fun. That's always been like a social highlight of mine. <laughs> so I yeah, me too. Yeah, I can't wait for that to happen again. Whenever.
0: Well, let's not get too mired in things that are sad because there's plenty to dwell on there if we want. Total, I think we're going to talk about 25 films. We're going to count down movies that are on each of our top 10 lists, but we're only going to talk about each movie once, and that's 25 movies total. And we're going to start with movies that just one of us picked, and then we're going to get into the overlap after that. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. now
1: where boys become greenhorns and greens become mates to oh, away, oh, hey, hey below the man down and if you ain't into
0: fishing hell you're in the wrong place give me some time to blow the man down me to be away, hey,
1: blow, blow the man down give me some time to blow
0: So like I said, we're going to start with movies that only one of us picked for our top 10. And it is tradition on these roundup episodes for James to go first. James, what was your number 10 of 2020?
2: So it was a documentary called Bloody Nose Empty Pockets, directed by two brothers who I think are actually from New Orleans. It basically takes place in a Las Vegas dive bar on its you know final night of operation. And the locals come in. And it's kind of just them hanging out, drinking, having conversations as the night progresses. Uh, It gets a a little dark in some spots, but it's kind of this fly on the wall of just like this local dive bar in its like dying days. I don't know if anyone else has seen this, but there's some very interesting context to be talked about that I don't know if I should get into unless y'all have seen it, because I don't want to like take anything away. The picture, but I feel like it's very important.
0: Well, from what I've heard, it's like half documentary and like somewhat scripted, right? It's like playing around with what's truth, but that's all I know about it really.
2: So, I mean, that's the gist of it is like it's presented as this like dive bar in Vegas when really these guys are from New Orleans. They wanted to set it in Vegas, but they actually ended up shooting it in New Orleans at a dive bar on the West Bank. And they auditioned people from the city, got like their cast of characters, and then basically for two days, they just fed them alcohol and just shot what happened. And there is one character that is an actual actor who's playing a part of like a washed up actor who's now an alcoholic. And so it is blurring this line of, I mean, first of all, the ethics of it, some people have questioned to get like a group of alcoholics in a room together and just get them drunk and see what happens. You can kind of question that. And also presenting itself as this like Las Vegas dive bar where these people know each other intimately when it's really just people that have only known each other for two days. So there's been a lot of conversation about that for me, at least it didn't matter because some of the stuff in here is so gut wrenching, but also reminding us you know, of a time pre-COVID when you could go to like a dive bar and just have a really intimate conversation with someone you don't know and get at some sort of truth with like a random group of people that decided to assemble here and, and drink. And there's some beautiful moments in here and some really sad moments too. So it kind of shows the whole spectrum of what it's like to go to these dive bars. I do question why they would set it in Vegas when they are from New Orleans and we have such a vibrant bar scene here. But all that stuff aside, I found it to be a really powerful document, really, of this culture.
0: And Brittany, your number 10 was also an outlier.
1: I'm surprised about that. Um, My number 10 was uh, The Berlin Bride. And it was a film that you had talked about, Brandon, and... The minute you said the word mannequin, I'm like, yeah, I want to see this now. I have this, (laughs) I don't know what it is. I just, I love like mannequins in film and like, I love um, people's like infatuation with mannequins, like people who are obsessed with them and like, you know, stuff their homes with them and talk to them like people, you know, mannequins are just so like human, like in this very disturbing way that I just find them very fascinating and very creepy and the Berlin Bride gave all of that to me, yeah. So it's it's basically this film about these two kind of interesting little dudes who come across who come across, <laughs> um, <laughs> who come across um, some parts of a mannequin. Uh, one guy pretty much gets like the whole enchilada of the mannequin, and he finds her. This she is a female mannequin in a park of nudists. And um, her arm falls off and a shop owner finds the arm and he just so happens to not have an arm. And, you know, the the mannequin, the spirit of it just takes over these two men um, and their lives. After a
0: spider crawls into its brain and takes over its body in an act that's never explained in any
2: way.
1: Yes. (laughs) This film is like this whimsical horror movie that is very, very silent. There is some dialogue, but it's few and far between. But it feels like you're watching a, like an artsy film, an an independent artsy movie that came out in like the late to mid 70s, you know? It looks like they
0: filmed part of it in the 80s and just didn't finish it until now. Because some of that footage looks so authentically vintage. And then some of it is the cheapest like laptop-grade CGI you've ever seen in a film.
2: So I think, I, I think it was shot in the 80s. Because I've seen this. This was actually on my top 20. I was so taken aback by the look of it. I was like, how did they get... Because so many movies try to achieve that 80s look but they just can't do it because the equipment and whatever. I'm like, how did they pull this off? And a little bit, I read it said that it was shot in the eighties. It was lost for like 30 years. And then they, what? they, you know, they scanned it and they did edit together some new, like digitally filmed shots, which I think is what Brandon's talking about.
0: And what I love about that is like, it feels like it's from a time when art movies like that could just be weird for no reason. Like it doesn't feel like this movie is particularly about anything, which is like trying to say anything. Yeah, yeah, it's just weird as fuck. It's just Uh, trying to
1: creep us out, and it worked.
0: And it's funny too. Like there's actual jokes in it, Um, especially when the arm takes over the amputee's body, and it's like dialing (laughs) piano salesman late at (laughs) night, and like painting its nails. Like yeah, um, it's a really funny movie it's
1: also like super like sexual without being sexy like you know you get a lot of good like hand fetish vibes from this movie um as well as like mannequin fetish vibes which i love i love all that kind of stuff
2: i think what i like too that a few movies this year I've liked for the same reason is like it's nice and short i think it's like an hour and 10 minutes or something which is exactly the length of time i need to spend in this universe. So it did not say it's welcome. And it's just artsy, fartsy, weird stuff. I love it. And
0: my number 10 was a movie I saw in the theater. Uh, it's Emma, the Jane Austen adaptation, starring Anya Taylor Joyce, the titular Emma Woodhouse. It is very straightforward as an adaptation. It's basically doing all the beats you would know from the book, or if you've seen Clueless a thousand times, you've seen this movie before. But the production design, the costuming, like, the whole movie just looks like a well-decorated cake in this very absurd, over-the-top, colorful, like, the colors pop off the screen and this like, kind of eye-bleeding beauty. But what really won me over is that it's a very funny movie. Like, Anya Taylor-Joy has comedic chops in this, uh, along with uh, Mia Goth, who plays, like, her sort of naive understudy, who she's, like, basically playing around... As if she's like a plaything, like kind of trying to match her up with all these gentlemen who are like above her stature and won't marry her because she's basically a commoner. But what's really great about it is that the movie is both very adoring of Emma's character and also very aware of how morally bankrupt she is in some ways because she's basically a teenager who's playing with other people's emotions and like making these, she's playing matchmaker and doing it for her own amusement And when she fucks up, the movie recognizes how cruel her missteps are. And there's these moments that, like, literally made me gasp, even though I knew they were coming, because the movie, like, knows how dark and just cruel it is that she's playing with other people's emotions for her own amusement. On top of it just being, like, a really beautiful object to look at, it's a very, like, fun, crisp straightforward adaptation of like material we've already seen before. Um, And I was just shocked by how vivid it was able to make that stuff and how fresh it felt. And if you have any like uh, affection for Anya Taylor-Joy or Mia Goth in particular, they're both really fun in it.
1: It reminds me a lot of like that Marie Antoinette movie that came out years ago with Kirsten Dunst, where you just watch it for like, the costumes but it also looks like the dialogue's pretty fun too which is awesome
0: that's a good comparison because that one's like period specific but it's also like very fresh and modern in mm-hmm. the same way a lot of people like that bridgerton show that's on netflix right now too i'd say it's kind of in the same wheelhouse
1: yeah i just started watching it so
0: i would not recommend it to james because i know that we recently <laughs> did our uh you know, genres we, we don't like Episode and period dramas was one of his So um, <laughs> maybe I wouldn't extend that Recommendation. You know, anyway, to say I say that, but like really
2: Anytime I go outside my comfort Zone and like like when I watched Little Women Last year, I was like, oh, well this is Fantastic. So I feel Like I probably would like this
0: I would check it out if nothing Else just for the look of it. Like it is one of the Most visually striking films I saw all year Yeah. What was your number nine?
2: Uh, my number nine was Sound of Metal. <laughs> Which is not as much about drumming as you would think. When <laughs> I, so it's basically about a heavy metal drummer who finds he starts hearing this like loud ringing, and then he goes to a doctor and he finds out like he will be deaf in a very short amount of time, and he is also someone that is struggling with like addiction, and he's about to lose his like music life, um, and he's convinced to go to basically a rehab center for for deaf people and it's just about his struggle with basically adapting to a new life and his like you know hesitance to accept being deaf and having to learn sign language and having to adapt to like not being able to hear the music that he loves to play so when I saw the trailer I thought it was gonna like I said be really focused on the drumming and heavy metal music. And I was really taken aback by how like nuanced it is. It's a very human film. And Riz Ahmed, who plays the main character, gives probably my favorite performance from a male lead this year. And I think it's just a really touching picture. And I think the sound design is really cool. You know, in the beginning, like, it's kind of showing you how things sound in his world as he's losing his hearing and it seems pretty true to life like what that experience is like and I also really like that the film doesn't necessarily end on a happy note like things aren't like fixed necessarily but he learns to have some like acceptance and accepting like the stillness you know as someone that's so used to like having noise in their life, like metaphorically and literally, and to get to a place of like almost spiritual acceptance and like enjoying being in the stillness. Like I thought it was a really solid movie. What about you, Brittany? What's your number nine?
1: So my number nine is the movie Relic. Um, and I, I think I talked, I talked about it, to you guys a while back whenever we were doing some episode together, it was one of my like, you know, what, what have I been watching lately movies, but yeah, it's basically a really good, like emotional horror film done in the style of hereditary where, you know, elements of horror are used to describe or, you know, serve as like a metaphor of like dementia, you know, it's about just this family in Australia who um, have, you know, there's the grandmother of the family She's, like, consumed by this, like, growing black mold in both the family home and on her body as well. And it just starts to kind of take over the house and the grandmother. And then weird stuff starts to happen. And it's like there's this family demon that's causing it. And it's it's just really good. I liked it a lot. Like, we all know, like, Hereditary is probably one of my favorite films ever. And I love that this film kind of went in that style because there's not a lot of you know horror movies that go that in that direction and the performances by everybody in this movie is pretty amazing you know it's basically these three women it's you know the grandmother her daughter and her granddaughter you know and they're all kind of living with each other and kind of coming to terms with this you know family curse of dementia and how it's probably eventually gonna like get all of them so yeah that's it that's relic
2: yes i think i was scared to watch this because of the dementia angle which you know is something that's in our family and just dementia horror movies just like scare the crap out of me but i I will definitely come around to checking this out one day
0: well uh my number nine is a netflix original and it is a movie that we've already done a podcast episode on Uh, boomer and i talked about it on a Lanyap episode it's called horse girl It stars Allison Brie as this woman who is kind of like a just average person. She like is a loner who works at a arts and crafts supply store. She binges her favorite TV show on loop, which is like supernatural detective show. She like obsessively watches it. And she used to be a kid with a horse. She used to ride around on a horse. She's like a genuine horse girl. And The horse has been removed from her life. She can no longer afford to have one. All of her family connections have gone away. Mostly because there is a history of mental illness in her family. And that creeps up on her. She starts to lose her mind. Where she is convinced that she is a clone of her own grandmother. And that aliens are abducting her while she sleeps. She's like losing time and like waking up with nosebleeds in odd locations. And the movie works on two levels, like on one level, it is a woman on the verge film where she gives her all in this like mental breakdown performance. It l- reminds me a lot of like Elizabeth Moss's movies, like, you know, queen of earth and invisible man and stuff like that, where you just like watch this person like completely unravel. And, you know, Alison breeze is really great at that, but the movie also in some ways takes her delusions seriously and like treats it as like a sci-fi narrative in a genuine sense on top of it being her um, just experiencing this like break with reality. And I found it very heartbreaking and just hard to watch at some points. It's also like quietly funny. Um, it it kind of starts as this like mumblecore movie and then turns into like bug <laughs> and that contrast is really intense. And it kind of ends in this beautiful lucid dream where she like organizes all the things in her life that are like out of her control And it is like one of the best 10 minutes of any movie I've seen all year. Uh, Once all those things kind of come into place and click into order where she starts to realize what's actually happening to her. I don't know. I just found that really beautiful and like a a really big relief after all the heartbreak that preceded it.
2: Yeah, I saw this and I uh, did not care for it, which is weird because it's like kind of in my wheelhouse. Like I love it's super divisive somehow. Yeah. And I, I mean, I felt strongly about it, but in a negative way. And I wasn't really expecting that. Like when it starts, like the first half, I was fully on board. And then just, you know, it's been a while since I watched it, but it completely lost me by the end. But from talking to other people, like they loved it. And it actually, the second half of the film, like, you know, they're on board with it. So it might be something I need to to rewatch. I was just sort of struck by like how much I should like this and how little I actually did enjoy it.
0: And I got to say, I keep running into that with this director, uh, Jeff Baina. He wrote I Heart Huckabees, and his other movies he's directed are Life After Beth, Joshi, and The Little Hours. And I feel like I love those movies at least 30 to 40% more than most people who watch them. And I don't know what that is, but I'm just like on his wavelength in in some ways. Well,
2: I do think I Heart Huckabees is hilarious, but Life After Beth, again, didn't really do much for me. So I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm just not. Not on his wavelength. What was your number eight, James? So my number eight is another documentary, Dick Johnson is Dead. I loved it. I thought it was a pretty inventive documentary where basically this director whose father is getting up there in age in an effort to like, because they already lost their mother, which is very painful in the family. So in a way, it's sort of like a gallows humor, like a way to confront death they decide they're going to reenact all these different ways that Dick Johnson could die. But it ends up being a very touching portrait of this guy, Dick Johnson, who I think one of the main things I loved about this movie is how wholesome and sweet of a man it seemed like he was. And he seemed like a great father. And the scene in particular where they actually reenact or enact his funeral, you know, he's lying in the coffin. They have all his friends and family around. And one of his best friends, like, starts breaking down, even though he knows Dick Johnson is still alive, but he knows that one day this will play out. But I I just thought it was, like, really sweet, touching. And I think if more people were able to confront death with humor in the way that the filmmaker and her dad does in this picture, like, the world would be a lot better off. So, yeah, I, I I really liked it. It was... One of the only movies on my top 10 list that did make me cry. So if you if you make me cry, then, you know, you earn a spot on the list. I, I thought it was really touching.
0: What really, like, broke my heart in that movie was not her relationship with her dad, which is, like, very strong and, like, playful. It was when she was, like, talking about how she didn't make the time to do that with her mother before her mother passed. And, like, that's that loss, like, at the core where she's, like, so fearful of doing that again with her only living parent like that's what gutted me in this movie the stuff with the dad is like it's it's sad because we're all gonna die and he's like very close to it and it's like morbid in that way but um they're making time to actually like spend constructive time with each other where they're like basically collaborating on this weird art project like i found that very charming and like heartwarming but when she like went back and looked at like oh this is the only 30 seconds of footage i have of my mother and like the emptiness of that in comparison is like really where it gutted me.
2: Yeah. Like where he's showing where the mother died, like where she fell down the stairs and just a little bit of footage they had of her, you know, it was like towards the end of her life where she was sort of out of it and not really herself. Yeah. That stuff was really, really heartbreaking. And it kind of makes me thankful for, I guess, this social media age where we can't have tons of video and pictures of our loved ones that we can kind of look back on. And the, yeah. And this movie is just like a living document to her father. So uh, yeah, I, I, I thought it was pretty bittersweet.
0: Well, Brittany, the next three are all you, your number eight, your number seven, and your number six. <laughs> oh wow. Really? All in a row. Yeah. Okay.
1: And you want me to just kind of knock them out? Just
0: run through them. Yep.
1: Oh shit. Okay. So my number eight is uh, the, the movie come to daddy that came out. Well, obviously 2020, um (laughs) and it stars elijah wood as this very obnoxiously funny man child um who's like super spoiled yeah hipster kid that you know has like all his like cool high-tech stuff and is just very empty (laughs) inside and he's like trying to like find and rekindle this relationship with the father he never really knew so he seeks him out and goes to this like remote like coastal cabin and there's a man that answers the door and he assumes that this is his father um, because he doesn't yeah he doesn't really know him that well and turns out that this man who is his quote unquote father is like a super huge like asshole and it turns out that it's not his dad
0: <laughs> I don't know how much, many more twists you want to reveal after that because the movie gets fucking weird after it that it gets
1: so weird I know like I'm trying to like explain basically like he finds out where his dad is and that's not his real father and it's like you said like there's a tons of twists and turns but the big reason why i love this movie so much and a big reason as to why it's my number eight is because of that like literally until the very like last two minutes there's just constant like surprises that pop up and I love that. I love that quality in a movie where it just keeps you like guessing and you never really trust what's happening. There's always something that's gonna like engage you a little more and that happens throughout this whole film like there's weird you know dead body stuff going on it's ins- it's insanely violent. Very, very violent. Surprisingly violent. (laughs) Like once you kind of get to that halfway point in the movie, it just is like a sort of this very gore fest, but in a very fun and like, you know, hip way. But I I loved Elijah Wood's performance in here. And I love that Elijah Wood's doing all these like really weird movies now. Yeah. Yeah, And I love this side of him. Um, so I can't wait to see what else this cool, weird dude's going to do. Um, but I yeah, I loved it. It's insanely entertaining. I watched it a couple of times because it was just so much fun. Like, it's a fun watch. It's hilarious. And there's a lot of mystery to it, which is also a good thing. Um, so yeah, have you, have you guys seen this? I think, Brandon, you've seen it for sure, right? Yeah, I
0: saw it at Overlook Film Festival in 2019. And Elijah Wood was there. I accidentally trailed him to the theater because he was, like, walking down Decatur ahead of me. What? These really cute little overalls. (laughs) I just felt like I was kind of stalking him. (laughs) It was a great great experience to watch with a crowd because it's so, like, like you said, twisty to the point where, like, people gasp at, like, what happens. Mm -hmm. So, like, in a packed theater, that was a lot of fun. And also the dialogue is written by the guy who wrote The Greasy Strangler. And it's got the same kind of, like, ugly repetition of The Greasy Strangler where, like... (laughs) The guy who answers the door, he like, calls his son a rat fucker. Okay, that's <laughs> that's a lot. But then he says, it's because you stuff rats up your cunt. When you die, they're going to find rats in your pelvic area where your cunt used to be. <laughs> like, it just keeps repeating and like going further and further in this really ugly way that's like <laughs> funny, but like really uncomfortable and grotesque.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love the the way the two halves of the movie, like that's what I liked about the first half was actually the banter. Between him and his quote-unquote dad, so I was like fully on board with that. And then, you know, when the twists really start happening after the halfway point, then my jaw just like hit the floor, and I was fully on board, yeah, with like where this movie was gonna take me. And it takes you to some like strange places,
1: <laughs> including a seedy motel, <laughs> which I love. I love a good like dirty motel scene in a movie. But yeah, just the the constant shock of come to daddy, you know. Love it. Probably going to be like one of my go-to movies whenever I'm just like bored and I want to throw something on there that I don't want to pay too much attention to, but have a good time with. That'll be it. But my number seven is, well, like come to daddy. Um, It's an Amazon prime movie. um, But my number seven is blow the man down. And I loved this movie so much. First of all, I love films that are set in these, like, you know, fishing towns in New England. And I don't know, I just love that ambiance so much, be it a horror movie, a drama, a romance, whatever. I'm into it, just for that setting. But yeah, this film is, you know, this New England crime thriller that's just chock full of badass women. And it's this town that is essentially, you know, run by women (laughs) and... It's about these, you know, two sisters who like lost their mother and they run this like fish shop. They're like these two young fishmongers and one of the sisters runs into a a little bit of trouble and ends up killing someone. And the film just kind of moves on from there where it's like they're trying to like cover it up. And they get the help of like these, I don't know, this like older woman in the town and the older women in this movie that kind of like run the show in the town and kind of you know have more stories.
0: They do it quietly, like yes, that's what it looks like. They're just kind of having tea and like chatting at like the hair salon, but they're actually running things while the men. Like, the cops and the uh, sort of bruisers <laughs> on the front shit. lines think that they're in control, you know?
1: Exactly. And they're the silence and just, like, the, oh, like, this is just our everyday life attitude that all these, like, older women have. I loved so much. <laughs> like, you know, there's one scene where she's just kind of, one of the older women is just, like, you know, washing the blood out of this, like, ice chest. She just does it so, like, gracefully, like, she'd just be, like, watering flowers in her flower bed. Little things like that.
0: (laughs) These two sisters are like way over their heads and like scrambling to like get their lives back together. And like, yeah, watching these older women who are like kind of calmly controlling things from behind the scenes is like a really fun contrast. Also, Margot Martindale is fucking terrifying in this movie. Yes. Um, (laughs) She's really fun to watch.
1: Like she's. Not horrible, but she, like, gives off some, like, trunchable vibes, you know?
2: <laughs> like, <she's, laughs>
1: she has that, like, very intense energy coming from her. Um But, yeah, I, I really like this. It's, a like, a very, very good traditional, like, crime thriller with the female front twist. Loved it.
0: And a lot of great sea shanties that uh break up the chapters. Yes. A lot of, like, fishermen singing these, like, kind of sea down. songs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah
1: fantastic <laughs> it smells like fish too like you know how <laughs> you can, sometimes you could smell a movie where i'm like god it just you could feel it it's just like they're just freezing constantly there's ice everywhere and just like raw fish so um i love that and my number six is um you cannot kill david arquette
0: nice which we already did a whole podcast around <laughs> we
1: did a whole podcast on that we talked about it till we probably couldn't talk anymore <laughs> But yeah, it's just this documentary that follows what old David Arquette's like come back to the world of wrestling that I knew nothing about. Period. Um, So I loved this movie. It was, you know, definitely one of the best documentaries that I saw that came out in twenty twenty. And it it is number six, which I think is pretty high for a you know top ten list. And it is there because I I guess it kind of like opened my mind to this world that I was kind of like unfamiliar with. Like I didn't know anything about David Arquette and wrestling and it did a good job of like educating me and like really getting me interested in wrestling again and like kind of poking around a little bit. And it got me interested in like David Arquette as a person as well. Like, you know, I always just knew him as being like, you know, these like goofy side, this goofy side character in like comedies from like the mid nineties So I um, love how this really got me interested in both wrestling and David Arquette's life. And the documentary just does a really good job of making it fun to watch. There's a few people that I've like begged. I'm like, you have to watch this. You know, it's you know how you have those (laughs) movies where you're like, I want everyone to watch this so they can know what I'm talking about. This was like my movie this year that I did that to. Like I made like, you know, all my friends watch it and, you know, some family members and I'm like, you'll have to see this shit. You're not going to believe it. And they're like, wait, is that David Arquette? Like Courtney Cox's husband. (laughs) And I'm like, yes. like, did you know this? I'm blown away.
2: What I really appreciated about it. um, And we talked about this on the podcast, but uh, I was kind of after rewatching it, Sort of it sits in the same area as like the Bloody Nose Empty Pockets where it's playing around a little bit with, you know, is it staged? How much of this is real? And I I think like we're seeing a lot more of those kind of documentaries that are in this like gray area where it's not straightforward. 100% this is what happened. I do think David Arquette is like working us a little bit in this which is perfect for wrestling. But I think we're seeing more documentaries like that. And I find them like kind of fascinating. Cause it is it does feel more like like wrestling itself, blurring the lines between you know, reality and fiction. You know, some people get they feel like a documentary has to be a straightforward a hundred percent this is real. But I, I don't really think that that's where we're at right now
0: if I had to compare it to anything on that front, um, it reminded me a lot of I'm from Hollywood, the Andy Kaufman wrestling movie, uh, where like the movie is definitely documenting something that happened. Like David Arquette did these shows. He like pushed himself to the brink and nearly died trying to please wrestling fans. Uh, The same way that Andy Kaufman went on the Southern wrestling circuit and fought Jerry Lawler in front of like thousands of people. But like you said, it's also a work where like, The movie itself is a wrestling angle. It is like a 10 month buildup and like tells a story in the ring, like deliberately fictional story the same way that like a real life soap opera wrestling angle would tell a story. Um, So it's doing a little bit of both. It's a real thing that happened. And it's also like constructing a narrative around that truth, which is just pure pro wrestling storytelling. And yeah, I really loved it for that.
1: Yeah, it, it helped me connect, you know, wrestling to like my obsession with like reality TV. Oh, so yeah. it yeah, it was just a, a mind-blowing month for me after I watched that. <laughs> it it took over my world a little bit.
2: Well,
0: let's give Brittany a break for a little bit. Uh
2: James, what was your <laughs> number five? Uh, so my number five was Black Bear. This is a very strange movie and it's gonna be hard for me to describe because I I really don't want to spoil anything and it's pretty clear like two halves of a whole so I'll kind of just tell you what happens in the first half without spoiling the second because that is sort of the fun in watching this is not knowing where the hell this thing is going so Aubrey Plaza plays this like director who is looking you know forward to her next project and she decides to go to this like kind of isolated cabin in the Mountains to just kind of do some brainstorming, figure out what she wants to do. And the host of the place she's staying and his wife, there's like this eerie tension going on between the three of them. It's sort of like a love triangle in the making.
0: It's very uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Right.
2: And, and so you think like, okay, that's what this movie is going to be. But the tone of it starts to change and it becomes this like, I want to compare it in some ways, like Persona and Mulholland Drive. Uh, That's kind of the themes it eventually explores, because like I said, there's the initial story of the Who's Afraid Virginia Woolf, the love triangle, and then there's like a very clear break. Without spoiling too much, essentially those same characters are in a different movie. Their personalities get scrambled. The personalities get scrambled, and now they're filming a movie in the cabin, but like I said, the roles are oddly mixed up. And so, yeah, it becomes this strange, yeah, again, like Persona, Mulholland Drive, that sort of thing. And Aubrey Plaza, I think, is fantastic in this movie. I've only watched the movie once, and after it was over, I kind of was scratching my head. I didn't quite know what to make of it, but I couldn't stop thinking about it. It left such an impression on me and like one of the strangest like narrative I believe, films of the year to where I really didn't quite know what it was getting at, but I loved it and it has a lot of twists and surprises in there and again, I think both sections of the film feel like two totally different styles of film. Like the second half feels almost like a like a John Castavetti's, The camera's just kind of moving around between all these different people. It's stylistically different from the first half, but the themes together are like very interesting. And um, I don't know, I want to rewatch it and think about it some more, but it definitely like takes you on a ride.
0: I watched it on your recommendation. I got to say I had a similar experience that you had with Horse Girl where like I liked the first segment and then by the end of the movie, I hated its guts. Yeah. Uh, or at least I had a very strongly negative reaction against it. Well,
2: you know, it's funny. I was actually going to bring that up when you're we were talking about Horse Girl because it feels like the exact same thing. Like I kind of got the sense that you would not like this movie. Um, yeah. I didn't know how you would feel about, it, but I think exactly the feeling you had towards it is what I felt to Horse Girl, and that's <laughs> I don't know why. Like why this one connected with me. I think maybe this one. I think is a little more heady. Like, I think it's got a lot on its mind. It's more intellectualizing. And I think Horse Girl is more the experience.
0: It's intellectualizing, but it has nothing to say. Like the the genre I would put it in is like writer's block thrillers, like uh, kind of those like Charlie Kaufman movies where it's like movies about writers or artists who can't get past a creative block. And like the longer they stall, the worse the conflicts in their life get. So it's like kind of meta in that way. It's obviously about like a filmmaker's relationships with their friends or with their lovers. They're kind of frustrated with that and frustrated with their own art. That's like a unifying theme between the two segments, but the segments themselves are like so out of whack. The first one, the Virginia Woolf segment is like maybe a third or less of the film. Yeah. And then the second one is so dominant and so lengthy and just not as interesting to me as where it started. And I, I think maybe with a third segment sort of balancing it all out, I would have felt less like this was an unfinished work, but it feels like half of an idea to me. Like it's like underbaked. and the movie even comments on that. Like in the first segment where Ari Plaza is playing a filmmaker and she's like, I'm making a movie, but I don't know what I want to say with it. The other characters like, well, how can you make something if you have nothing to say? And I, that, that just kind of stuck with me the longer the film went on. I was like, this is just treading water and, the performances are really good, but they're not in service of anything concrete or useful to me. I,
2: I kind of see where you're coming from, but I, and it, you know, I did not like the Charlie Kaufman movie that came out this year. I'm thinking of ending things. I mean, not a fan. It was too meta for me. And this is like in a strange way, like maybe even more meta, like the movie does feel like a manifestation of writer's block. We're like, you have these characters in the beginning, you think you have a good story, you realize the story is not that good. So you take those same characters and you mix them around in a different conflict, but it's still not satisfying. And at the end, you still are kind of where you started. And I could understand why that is like very frustrating. I will agree that I think a third segment could have really brought everything together in a more perfect way. I mean, it, it is like extremely messy and, Like I said, I totally get every criticism that this has got, but I don't know why it just like, I was engaged with it. And I think it's because of Aubrey Plaza's performance.
0: Yeah. She's really good. I mean, she, she's always very good. I I always want more for her. So I'm glad that it gave her something to chew on kind of like we were saying with horse girl with Alison Brie in that film, like Aubrey Plaza gets to have a full Elizabeth Moss level breakdown in the back half of this movie. And it's really fun to watch. So my number five is a movie that we've already done on the podcast. And I think when we talked about it, there wasn't much to say. So maybe I could do this pretty quickly. It's called Birds of Prey. It is a corporate (laughs) superhero movie, which is not something that usually winds up on our list like this. But it's so good. And at rewatching it, I thought maybe the theater experience was what made it so fun and colorful and vivid to me. But I, I can't help but be impressed by how this reinvigorates the superhero genre for me. I have not liked a superhero movie this much since the nineties, since like super horny Batman movies from my childhood. (laughs) And it just is Margot Robbie wearing every color under the rainbow in like glittery outfits and busting men's kneecaps and firing glitter cannons and acting like a hyper violent Bugs Bunny and yucking it up across the screen. Yeah. If you have any like kind of aversion to the superhero genre, And you like the kind of movies we talk about on the show this one really worked for me it's super feminine and it's super violent and just like complete anarchy um and i get giddy every time i think about it usually you watch those movies in the theater and like 10 minutes later it disappears from your mind like a vapor but it stuck
2: with me in a great way yeah it's a blast man it's just a good time
0: yeah and the harley quinn cartoon on uh hbo max Highly recommend that as well. I couldn't get enough of that character and that show um, piled it on more and more candy. I enjoyed every minute of it. Well, Brittany, uh, your number five is another movie that we did on the podcast recently. Uh, Boomer and I talked about it in a Lanyap episode.
1: Yes, and I listened and I was very thrilled at the reaction that y'all had to it. (laughs) But my number five is The Other Lamb. Um, So The Other Lamb kind of gives me that cult shit that i dig you know i love anything about a damn cult i always find it fascinating and it does it without being an over-the-top movie like it's a pretty quiet simple film in the way that it's filmed but it's so beautiful i love the ambiance of the of the movie the plot is pretty cool essentially it's about a cult in the woods um, a jesus cult a jesus type cult with a male leader and all female members that he is obviously like abusing and controlling. And, you know, he's got a system to where he has wives and daughters and they're all coming from his seed. And he eventually promotes the daughters to wives, <laughs> and then makes more daughters. It's so sick.
0: We cannot get past incest on the show. We can't.
1: We can't. <laughs> I, I, no, I know. i I've you know, tried. <laughs> And I was when I was making my list of like movie of the month choices for this year. I'm like, damn it. Like, I think a bunch of these are incest movies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, yes, a, an incest cult movie. Hello. <laughs> hello. But it, the movie is kind of through the eyes of this girl who's like on the cusp of becoming a wife from being a child. <laughs> it's so sick. But she's kind of starting to realize the bullshit of the cult she was essentially like born in. And you can kind of really feel her emotions. You know, you can feel her kind of pulling away from this and really starting to think on her own and make her own decisions about, you know, her, her dad, God. And it's just beautifully filmed. It's, you know, it's in this woodsy area that I wish I knew the exact location of it.
0: Definitely seemed like Eastern Europe or something, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. It feels like you're in Romania, in the woods of Romania. Right. It's a very quiet movie, you know, and I like that. I like the the quietness, kind of like how The Witch was. I mean, in, in no way is this film as scary as The Witch, but you really get that ambiance from the witch you know everything's pretty quiet it's woodsy you know the rustling of the grass and the leaves are you know are louder than the voices sometimes
0: i think that might be the only thing really holding it back is that there are other like a24 type horror movies especially the witch and midsummer that have come out in recent years that like have kind of already done the same material it doesn't hold it back it doesn't make the movie any lesser but it's like this is kind of familiar by now But it is so gorgeous to look at. Yeah. And it is very impressively acted. And I I really enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, I think that's a, you know, I I love the episode that you and Boomer did. And I think y'all brought that up. And it was spot on where it's like, if you hadn't seen like The Witch or Midsommar and you watched this movie, like you probably would love it a million times more. But because like we've seen films like this already that are done on like a much larger budget like you said, it doesn't make it like any less than what it is, but you, you can't help but compare it to those bigger films. But the woman who filmed this movie is like kind of just starting out in the world of directing. So it's cool to see like that on such a small budget that this individual created this like masterpiece. Um, So God knows what will happen in, you know, upcoming years with other films that she'll do. But yeah, I liked it a lot. And I think a lot of the material out there, like the posters and stuff like that, it makes it look super creepy. (laughs) Like you've got your main girl kind of like looking through this like crack of darkness and all this kind of stuff. And it really isn't a horror movie more than it's like a a coming of age drama. Yeah. (laughs) It just takes place in a cult. cult.
0: Yeah. Well, we're gonna double up on you again. Uh, what was your number four?
1: Oh shit, shit. Okay, okay. Uh, my number four is um Baccarat. I don't even know what to categorize it as. It's a Brazilian film. It
0: Feels like a western. Yeah, like a revenge western. It's like a most dangerous game riff, too, right? Like it's like yeah, hunting man and sci-fi also kind thriller. of
1: sci-fi. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, you know, it's this this very small town and. It's a fictional town, but it really represents, you know, these smaller outlying villages in Brazil in in an impoverished area. And you have, you know, folks who are living in this town and they're all like, no one really has like a role that is super prominent in this village. I mean, there's a few, but everyone is just so like entertaining in their own way. Like, it reminds me a lot of like the crew from like growing up on the bayou like just that the small town people you have that are all like very interesting well this town just is like slowly getting wiped off the map and it turns out that there's like a you know a group of wealthy folks who are like literally hunting this town in that like you know most dangerous game way
0: it's like wealthy white tourists from the city hunting these like rural like brown people in the uh, outskirts and not, not even for
2: like, particularly like it is nefarious, but it's like, they're really just doing it for fun for sport. Well, and they're, they're just like having a good laugh, you know, like it's not like they're even taking it super seriously. Like they have a vendetta or anything. It's just like a thing to do to pass the time as like entertainment. Yeah, it's not
0: like the hunt where it's like f- for like a specific revenge.
2: And I think that makes it more terrifying in a sense like it's so inhumane where they don't even like necessarily dislike these people it's just like we don't even it's look at them as like people and we're just matter. having a good time yeah
1: yeah that's like the gist i got from it is like They're like, these people are like, you know, peasants, like they don't really matter to anything. Like, why can't we just have fun at the, you know, cost of their lives because they don't matter that much. And that definitely comes across very strongly. And I think that like the director of this movie, he's from that area of Brazil. Like, I know Bacarau is not like a real town, but like the town that it's, you know, representing this, you know, kind of impoverished part of Brazil is where he's from. And a lot of folks there kind of work for the wealthier families in, like, your bigger Brazilian cities. And, you know, they're heavily, like, you know, exploited folks. So um, you really get that vibe from it. And I think that, you know, having a director who's had that experience, who's, like, from a town such as, like, Bacarau, that really helps.
2: Yeah, it feels very authentic. But at the same time, you have stuff like, you know, the UFO that appears and, it, <laughs> right. and the town gets literally, it disappears from the map at one point.
0: They eat mushrooms and trip out a little they bit. Yeah, trip
2: out. They're psychedelic. So I think what I really liked about this film was a lot of the other films I gravitated to this year tended to be pretty tight, not bloated at all. And this movie is like two hours and 20 minutes. It's a lot. Like I said, you got... UFO, psychedelics. You got hunting people, and it, it's not in any rush really to get anywhere. Like the reason I compared it to a western is in a lot of older westerns, the beginning is just getting to know these characters. They're all like marching towards like a town where they're going to have this like big shootout at the end, and that's what this felt like. It's like mm-hmm. in the first part, you're really getting to know the townspeople, and then you really get to know. The, like, assassins, which I actually thought was probably the weakest point of the movie. Like, I didn't really want to hang out with these assassins for 40 minutes. But then it has this payoff where they obviously get picked off one by one and the townspeople win. But again, I think that's actually what I liked about it was it had so much on its mind. It wanted to do so much. I, I think that's what I appreciated about it. It was a little messy. Yeah. But it did a lot of things really well.
1: When you describe it, like, it, yeah, it's like, wow, this is a messy movie. But when you're watching it, like, it doesn't feel like the kind of messy that pisses you off when you're watching a movie. Like, you know, sometimes you watch movies like this and you're probably like, God, this is too much shit. Like Yeah, I was never, like, checking
2: my watch or anything. Yeah, it was
1: so cool. (laughs) Like, I was
2: along for the ride, you know, but when you kind of think about everything that happened, you're like, man, that was, that was a lot. Like, they really packed <laughs> a lot into two hours and 20 minutes.
0: And for the movies that were on two of our lists, actually, it's just me and James had a few titles overlap.
1: Always left out, always. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, Britney's our, like, lone wolf this episode. <laughs> James's number seven and my number six were Possessor, the uh, second film from Brandon Cronenberg, David Cronenberg's son. Uh, it is a sci fi movie starring Andrea Riseborough and Christopher Abbott, who was also in Black Bear. Andre Riseborough plays this assassin in like the near future who can hack into people's bodies and frame them for murders. So she's like assigned to kill people, but she does it while wearing someone else's skin suit. And over time, she starts to lose herself within her roles. Like she starts to like, blur her identity with these people whose bodies she's hacking into. And this movie chronicles her taking over Christopher Abbott's body. And it's like the final straw. Her attachment to herself breaks. It's represented on screen in these like kind of video art psychedelic freakouts, also with this like hyper intense practical effects gore, where like her face is melting off of her body. and um, as she's like losing herself, she loses her sense of morality too. So instead of just killing people the way she's assigned to do, she like revels in the gore of it the kills get more and more gnarly and it's not about an execution. It's about like just bathing in blood more or
2: less. Yeah. Cause she has the option to just kill them with a gun. And for a lot of these killings, it's like in the most brutal way possible. Like instead of just yeah. shooting them, like when I just like totally destroyed, you know, stab them a bunch of times or you know, whatever gruesome, way she can come up with. So yeah, it's definitely her transforming into just a cold blooded hit woman, essentially.
0: And the two things that like really stuck out to me about that about about the movie as a whole, like I really liked the kind of like future technophobic paranoia of it. Like it's very much about like Amazon and Facebook kind of like invading your privacy. Well that
2: that scene where he's watching people have sex and he has to like pick out what drapes. They have in their apartment to put in an algorithm to sell people more drapes or whatever it's just like that's the kind of shit that is going on right now
0: yeah he's like spying on people through their laptop screens and like through their like cell phone cameras um and so like her hacking into people's bodies is only like a step ahead of that invasion of privacy Um, i also just liked it a lot because andrea riseborough like loses herself in every role she's in Like, if you watch her in Mandy or Nancy or um, The Death of Stalin, you Mm -hmm. might not be able to tell that was all the same person. Like, she's very, like, a chameleon in that way. Kind of like that Peter Sellers thing where she, like, she doesn't have a personality. Um, She's, like, a blank slate.
1: You're right about that. Because, like, when I watched Mandy and she was in it, everyone's like, yeah, you've probably seen her in blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I've never seen this woman before.
2: (laughs) When it works in this particular role, too, because that is what... It's happening with her character too. Is like she's turning into all these different people, and then has completely lost all sense of self.
0: Yeah, and it, it felt like the movie was kind of built around that. Even though Christopher Abbott is the character for a lot of the screen time, and like the two of them are basically fighting for possession of this body in this like gross psychedelic horror freak out way. So yeah, it was a very visually striking, upsetting body horror also like a technophobic thriller which i always like and just also like felt like a comment on andrea riseborough's like lack of a persona so yeah that, that's why it really worked for me i don't know why it ranks so high in james's list i don't know if it was the same kind of overlap yeah I me
2: mean, it was exactly the same stuff and i would also say like he is david cronenberg's son and he obviously has taken a lot of his father's interests you know the technophobic thing and definitely the body horror but to me this movie felt fresh like it didn't seem like he was just rehashing what his father did in Videodrome or Scanners, whatever. Like, this did feel like a modern version of the Cronenberg aesthetic. And so, like, I'm very interested to see the future work that he does. Because, you know, his David Cronenberg's gone on to do kind of these other weird, you know, he did, like, Cosmopolis and Maps of the Stars and these films about, like, Hollywood and Privilege. He's gotten a little away from what he's known for. And it's interesting that his son has sort of taken the reins on that. And um, main reason I liked it besides the thematic stuff is like, it's just gnarly as hell. Like the <laughs> violence so is so violent. <laughs> the melting of faces. Yeah. It's just psychedelic. And I also love the practical effects. Like definitely my kind of shit when it comes to this style of like sci-fi movie. So it's, yeah, it, ticked all the boxes for me.
0: Yeah. Like James said, if you miss David Cronenberg making movies like Existence or Videodrome, like this is the continuation of that idea. And I, I think it, it does enough to connect it to our modern Amazon sponsored hellscape uh, to like make it uh, relevant and not just like a, you know, tracing paper a copy of his dad's work. Um, it, it's mm-hmm. got a very like of the moment feel. To the point where people are like vaping the entire movie. And like right. someone uses the word cuck queen, which is like not a term that would have been around in the eighties. Um, what? Uh- yeah, there's a lot of modern <laughs> awesome. stuff in it.
1: Okay.
0: Also James is number six. And my number four, uh, was this movie called the 20th century. It sounds very boring on paper. It is a retelling of the 1899 prime minister campaign, <laughs> uh, for Canada. Um, Oh, and, man. you know, the winner of that election was the longest running prime minister in Canada. Doesn't this sound fascinating? Uh, this movie is like. Oh, gosh. <laughs> it's not a historically accurate political film. It is a Guy Madden type surrealist comedy. All the set design is this hand built German expressionist type. Almost looks like cut and paste collage, but it's these like really absurd, artificial dreamscapes that are like just wonderful to look at and the comedy of it is this guy who won this election i should have his name in front of me but i don't and i don't know much about canadian history so it's kind of weird that this movie ranks so high well in this movie like plays
2: so <laughs> loose with history like i tried reading about because these are based off of actual people but the way they behave really in this movie it, it's very loose with facts and who these people actually were it's more. I think it's more just like poking fun, and there's a lot of like Monty Python style humor, Kids in the Hall type Kids stuff, in the, and like poking fun at like like it's the most Canadian movie. Like it's just making fun of like Canadian nationalism.
0: And the Prime Minister contest itself is like a series. It's almost like sketch comedy. It's a series of very Canadian contests, clubbing baby seals that part made me laugh so hard i couldn't breathe uh, or like politely confronting someone for cutting in front of you in line like how do you do that passive aggressively it's like
2: a contest <laughs> that gets you the prime ministership cutting ribbons and the yeah what was it endurance tickling it's a, it's very <laughs> it's very silly
0: it's also one of the kinkiest movies of the year which you would not expect but this guy has a fetish for leather boots and for like dominatrix type like domineering women and wants to suppress that. And it like goes to great lengths to like deny his kink in public. Um, so he can be like a professional politician and him fighting against his own kinky nature uh, versus this like political pressure on him to be like the perfect chaste man is really funny to me.
2: What, there's that line where it's like, where does he say Canada is just one failed orgasm after another? which is like yeah which is kind of what the characters oh my god and then you have to talk about the cactus man yeah
0: this like mystic gives him this cactus that's supposed to like look over him as he's like fighting back his like boots kink um and once he actually has a wet dream and gives into the kink the cactus ejaculates everywhere and then rots in its own ejaculate and it's like cream
2: corn colored chunky it's chunky and disgusting (laughs) Oh, oh my god Dude, this movie is this bonkers. And like I only I only watched it cuz I saw that you reviewed it pretty highly, Brandon. So I was like, you know, we're like, oh, let's check this out. And from the very first scene where he's talking to the the girl who's dying, like I was already on the floor laughing, like in the first 5 minutes, and it just sustains throughout. Like it was definitely the funniest movie I've watched this year.
0: Yeah, it's like the funniest comedy and also like really beautiful to look at which i don't think you normally can say about comedies like it's a gorgeous art piece on top of being like super silly
2: yeah i mean the german expressionism is like such a cool style and that with like all the overtly canadian symbolism and then with the monty python style humor and the kind of subversive sexual stuff and i was like whoa this movie is bonkers i love it though it really it was a blast
0: So the last of our overlap was actually my number eight and James's number
2: four. Oh, color out of space. You know, I actually thought that this was going to end up being the overall number one or two.
1: Well, shit. It's my, it's number 13.
2: Really? Just outside the top 10. All right.
1: right. Yeah. I mean, I liked it. I loved it. I'm feeling like I (laughs) should have.
2: No, no, no. I I was just, I thought that was like a guaranteed, just because, you know, like with Mandy and some other films, like, it feels, like, quintessential, like, this is sort of mm-hmm. the Swamp Flicks aesthetic, and that's kind of how I felt about Color Out yes. of Space.
1: It It is. And you know what? I kind of – maybe I overthought it, but I, I kept, like – it was high on my list, and as I kept thinking of other movies I saw, I was like, well, this one was a little more impactful on me. Yeah. And – you know, it, it just got a little lower and lower each time.
0: I'll say it dropped down my list when I watched it a second time too. Like it was, it was a little higher and you know, I prioritized mm-hmm. some stuff like the 20th century where I was like, well, fewer people have seen this and it like means a lot to me personally. Mm-hmm. And you know, Colorado space also came out like in February or something like that. Like it was so long yeah. ago. Yeah,
1: It's
0: hard to hold on to that.
2: Yeah. I mean, I like, I think when I first saw it, Besides the movie I ultimately picked for number one, it's the only other movie where I was like, "Oh man, this has got to be movie of the year." But yeah, then you know, as I caught up in some other stuff from 2020, it it did drop down, but it, you know, it dropped down to number four. I still believe <laughs> yeah. that it is like a swamp flicks style movie.
1: It is. It totally is
2: because it's it's weird <laughs> and it's gross and it's it's trippy. We
1: love our our body horror and swamp flick. So,
0: yeah, it's it's a uh, Richard Stanley returning to the director's chair, adapting the HP Lovecraft story about a meteor that brings an evil color to the world and starts mutating the the family that's hanging around it. I mean, the two major things about this movie for me, unavoidable, Nick Cage's performance is just so fucking weird. Yep. I'm sure a lot of people are sick of that kind of performance that like Highlight real like goofy over the top caricature that he does. I'm not, I'm not tired of it yet either.
1: <laughs> I also love when he does that performance as a dad. He's in more dad roles now, you know what I mean? And just being oh, like a in mom and, dad. S- mom and dad, yeah, like yeah, a, a, a psychotic one. Nicolas Cage dad. It's amazing. And I think what, what
0: saves it is the other thing I really liked about it too, where it's not just him. Losing his mind because, you know, this meteor is making everyone lose their mind. It's not like just him freaking out. Everybody's losing track of time and, like, going way over the top and, like, acting bizarrely. I mean, he is the biggest. You can't out-overact him. Uh, He won't allow it. (laughs) But I I think the other thing that really works to ground that is this movie, like, felt like a very clear metaphor about like cancer just eating a family apart from the inside yeah yeah it, it starts with this mother in recovery and like remission from her cancer and they're like living on this alpaca farm uh, in isolation as like a homeopathic like bringing her back to good health mentally and physically after her cancer battle and what happens is that cancer spreads out from this meteor in in the form of this color that distorts time and physicality and by the end of the film she is basically like a pile of sentient tumors in this like kind of Cronenbergian body horror and literally starts absorbing her family into her cancerous flesh and it's horrible to look at and like really like tough to sit with even though Nick Cage is very silly and there's a lot of fun parts to the movie as well
2: yeah I mean I think also I liked it just because you know, I watched that Richard Stanley documentary and I really enjoyed him as like a person kind of wanted, was hoping that he would get another chance to direct after the Island of Dr. Moreau fiasco. And yeah, it was gross, but it also at heart and it was about something and it was well directed. It had strong themes. And then some of the images are just some of the weirdest, grossest shit in like a while. And then when you throw on the Nick Cage performance like it really took it over the top for me.
0: And it's one of the movies that like most benefited from seeing it in the theater too cuz it has that intense purple color representing this like evil thing that can't be represented on screen because it's like cosmic. That was eye-searing in the theater. Like it like blinded me almost like staring at a strobe light for 90 minutes and I really I enjoyed being immersed in that even though it was like physically painful
2: you know and it, there's been a lot written about how it's hard to adapt lovecraftian horror and i feel like this is probably the best version of that i mean i think to some degree like annihilation
0: oh yeah for sure was
2: that too but i actually think this like got more at like what is horrible and scary about like this unknown thing of not of this universe so i i think if Finally, like got Lovecraft, you know in a way I haven't seen a lot of other films.
0: All right, back to movies that were only on one of our lists. James, what was your number three?
2: My number three was a Danish drama called Another Round, starring Mads Mikkelsen, who I absolutely adore. It's about a group of these four like middle-aged teachers. They all work at the same school, and they're all going through like a midlife crisis. Either their marriages have lost passion or they lost their passion for learning and teaching and they're all like kind of in a rut and one day they're talking at um one of the characters his like birthday party he brings up the fact that there was this philosopher that thought that human beings were at their best when they had 0.05 alcohol in their bloodstream that is like the perfect level to function as a human being Is Basically, being a little bit drunk. And so they decide, like, let's try this out. Like, let's see if this actually works. And then they even get the breathalyzer and they're drinking. And they they set these rules too. And they're kind of strange. Like, we can only drink during the week, not on weekends. And we can only drink till eight o'clock. And, you know, we have to keep it at this 0.05 level. So they start their day like having some cocktails, maybe having a few beers in the middle of the day. And their lives actually do start to improve in the beginning. You know, Mads Mikkelsen, the main character, he has sort of lost his passion for teaching history. And he finds like after a few, he's like really engaged with the students. He's a better teacher. He's a more thoughtful husband, a better friend. And so it like works for them in the beginning. And then they decide to push it a little bit more. You know, let's see how, if we can get to like 0.1 alcohol level, see what that does. And essentially what you see is like these characters who all have different lives, who have different relationships with alcohol and how this upping the ante affects each one of them in different ways. So it's this really, I, I think really interesting study about alcohol in our culture. And I feel like a lot of movies, it's either like the hangover thing where like, Oh, alcohol's crazy fun time, and ooh, that was wild. Or it's like super depressing. This is like the worst thing. It's you know a black abyss, and I, I feel like this movie was so fascinating to me because I think it actually gets at something truer about humans' relationship with alcohol in that it is this thing that's been around forever. It's a social lubricant, and being drunk at a certain level, is good for the soul, yeah, but it's a slippery slope, too. And it. the movie goes into that. And all this culminates in my favorite scene of the year. The last five minutes of this movie are pure ecstasy, where after Mads Mikkelsen, after kind of going down the dark road, and he decides to cut back on the drinking, and they're at their student's graduation, and the students are all getting drunk, and he decides, like, all right, one more time, I'm going to do it. And he starts dancing, like doing like beautiful, like ballet style dancing, drunk off his ass. And it's the most like ecstatic life affirming scene I've seen all year and really encapsulate what the whole movie is about is like, there's a reason we have this like relationship with alcohol that isn't going away. And there is some like good to it that no one really wants to talk about. And I I just saw it like, Performances were great. Interesting story that I haven't really seen told before. And um, like I said, last five minutes, my favorite five minutes of any movie this year.
1: So yeah, my number three is a documentary. Check us out with all of our documentaries this year. Um, It's The Painter and the Thief. I watched it again recently when I was like doing my list and it just kept creeping up higher and higher. And I think it really hit me hard just because of the year that 2020 was, that this was kind of like, uh, I did a lot of like self-reflecting when watching this movie. Basically, it's about a real life event where this woman in the art world, you know, when we think of the art world, you know, of course, you know, artists tend to, you know, kind of live in this artist lifestyle, but it's kind of more on like the upper class end, right? People that buy art. Things like that. And I mean, her, this woman's paintings run for like, you know, what, 20 grand and around that and up, like, you know, high value art and her paintings get stolen. So you have, you know, the thief. So you have, you know, your painter, this person living in that world. And you have the thief who's like, you know, he's, you know, addicted to drugs. He's a thief. Seals kind of always in trouble. And their are two worlds meld together. And he becomes a muse for this artist that he stole from. And it's just, it felt, it's like a good feeling movie, even though you watch like they're both of their kind of demons come out throughout this documentary. There's a lot of like internal struggles that they go through that you really see through, you know, the way that this is filmed, you know. You have the painter who's telling you the story of the thief and you have the thief who's telling you the story of the painter. So there's a lot of, you know, duplicate scenes, but it's through the lens of each individual and how they see that other person. I love that kind of stuff. So it's it's good. It's a very, like, emotional movie, though, but it does have, like, a sort of happy-ish ending, where you know everyone they, they both help each other kind of grow
0: it's like a therapeutic ending
1: it's very therapeutic right and i, I don't know like i always f- am fascinated at these stories where someone does something so horrible to a person and that person like forgives them and they kind of just move on with their life like i just find that to be so powerful and watching this i mean I've gotten robbed, you know, I've gotten my car broken into and stuff like that. And I just remember, like, in those moments, you think, like, I don't know, at least I did. I have, like, you know, sometimes I have, like, anger issues. And I'm like, wow, I'm going to kill this person. (laughs) You know, like, I get so mad. But then, like, when you kind of step back and look at it and it's like, well what about that person? They're still an individual. Like you have to look at him that way. And I think like seeing how this woman, this painter like kind of really describes it. Like she could have gotten so pissed off at this person. And she of course was upset that this, you know, painting that she, that was worth so much money that she's dedicated her time and put her soul into was just like stolen and lost. You would think that would piss her off and just want to be like, yeah, fuck that dude, put him in jail. And she kind of, doesn't go that route and kind of looks at him as like an individual and is more interested in like him as a person and like what made him do it and you know I don't know I just I found that to be really nice and it helps me really think you know like if something like that were to happen to me again I probably wouldn't get as angry if I am robbed or whatever (laughs)
0: She does have a hard time letting it go, even after they become friends. Like, she can't stop asking, like, are you (laughs) sure? But where is it? You don't know what happened to that painting?
1: (laughs) Right, right. Which makes sense, you know, I mean, it's her painting and everything. But yeah, Yeah. like, it was a good story of, like, two people, like, two realistic people who I follow on Instagram now, because I'm very interested in their lives.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I know James was talking earlier about how, like, with uh, Dick Johnson is dead... And uh, You Cannot Kill David Arquette, like those movies are blurring reality and fiction and like playing with the form of what a documentary is. And I don't think this one does that as much. Um, there's a little bit of flipping back and forth between the two people's perspectives. Like you hang out with the artist for a while, you hang out with the thief for a while, and they tell each other stories, which is kind of like an experiment in form. But for the most part, the movie is just like a really odd story. That's told, like, straightforward. I don't want to call it old-fashioned, but that feels like not the kind of documentaries that get praised very often anymore. It's almost like a wonder that you can find a story that's this unique and hasn't been told before. Um, And I I found that the story it tells very compelling. Yeah, and I I don't get that sense very often anymore from, like, documentaries that don't even play around, you know?
1: And it was nice to have, like, a really touching story come out this year (laughs) the year of pure shit you know so i think if you know had we not had a pandemic this year i don't know maybe i wouldn't have been as emotionally like into this movie as i was this year but like when i was watching it i mean between like the pandemic and like this you know the police brutality going on it was just like a little bit refreshing you know to kind of just see how like you know a little bit of understanding and like not being selfish and putting yourself first how that really does like go a long way
0: uh my number three film for the year is the only animated movie we're going to talk about today. Um, It's stop-motion animated. It is called The Wolf House. It's telling a fairy tale version of a real-life atrocity that happened after, you know, German Nazi soldiers and officers were exiled. A lot of them went to places like South America to escape being put on trial for their war crimes. And one of those exiles built a commune in chile where they like created a like honey farm more or less and an insular community where they basically oppressed the people that came with them and um, gradually started abusing the villagers outside of their little commune as well and the real life story behind that's really horrific there's a great series of wikipedia articles that could uh, link you to about it but i don't think you need to know much of that going into this film Um, It's presented as a propaganda film and it is the crudest version of stop motion animation you'll ever see. It's presented as a warning to anyone within this commune. Like if you run away from us, this is what will happen. And it tells the story of this girl, Maria who runs away from the commune to like live on her own. And she is hunted by wolves (laughs) and trapped in this house where she raises her ugly pig children. (laughs) And basically it's, a different version of stop motion animation than I've ever seen before where they paint these 2D figures on the wall as if they were being projected onto the wall. And then the next frame is that painting being erased and then moved over an inch and repainted. And it's projected onto the furniture. It's projected onto objects. And sometimes it transforms into objects. There's like really crude paper mache figures and just broken ceramics and furniture everywhere and it just becomes this like hideous stop motion nightmare where these like pigs are trapped in the house while this like wolves outside are trying to blow the house down um so it's both familiar and alienating very confusing and like hard to look at and just got under my skin and creeped me out more than any horror film i saw all year animated or not um, so, if you're looking just for something kind of like with Violence Voyager last year, just like this very amateur but affecting like haunting nightmare of a movie, um I, I've really enjoyed the Wolf House a lot,
2: yeah, I watched this on a Saturday morning, and I immediately had to go take a walk outside because <laughs> this world was terrifying, and it, also to the way everything it's like you never had any solid ground. To stand on. Like everything is either twitching or morphing into something else or shifting in some ominous way. Like even in the moments where Maria and the children are doing okay, there's always this underlying anxiety. Cause you know like at any moment this is going to turn literally these characters or these images are going to turn into something evil. And yeah, it, it really like is scary in in a different way than most horror movies. Yeah. I mean, definitely one of the craziest, scariest things I watched this year.
0: And just like nothing I've ever seen before. I feel like I'm always looking for that in movies. And like, those are the ones that kind of, I don't know, ascend to the top of my list. Like the ones that really stick out are like, I've never seen someone visually accomplish something like this. Well,
2: yeah. That's how I felt. Like when you recommended violence Voyager last year, I was like, I don't know where Brandon finds these movies, but I'm glad <laughs> that I have him. To kind of show me, because like, yeah, I didn't know that something like this existed. It's wild. It's really, really crazy. I'd say that's a very different vibe from your number two of the year, which I think is
0: one of the more consensus picks across like most platforms, like one of the best movies of
2: 2020. Yeah. And I kind of struggled with this movie because like it was for a few of these, I kind of seeked out like, what are the top 10 movies of the year and this movie? Popped up on a few different lists, and I'm like, like reading the synopsis, I'm like, what? Like, I don't understand why this is getting such high praise. And the movie is First Cow, uh, which is an A twenty four movie set in basically the early days of America in the frontier, and it's centered around these two characters, one of whom is, you know, he's part of this frontier company, and he's the guy whose job it is to like forage for food. He's the chef uh, chef of the Frontier Company, and uh, they complete their mission. They end up in this little town, and he's trying to figure out, like, what am I going to do now, like, in this wilderness, and people are just struggling to survive, to just make ends meet, to have a shelter. So it's a very rough time, and they also portray, like, the men at this time are, like, men with beards that kill things and will, like, beat you up or rob you. There's no really law and order. So it's like a very scary time. And you have this character who's like basically a chef who is just kind of like a sweet, kind guy. Like he treats everyone with like respect and kindness. And he's surrounded by these brutes. And he eventually links up with this Chinese American who in a similar way doesn't quite fit in. And they sort they form this like friendship. And it's really sweet. And Eventually, they decide like let's settle down together. Like we'll look out for each other. We got each other's back. And soon, this wealthy landowner ships a cow from Europe, the first cow to the United States. And in the middle part of this movie, their two main characters are just kind of hanging out, talking about their dreams. And the one guy said like you know I always wanted to open up a bakery. I, I love baking. And, you know, but it sucks because around here all we can eat is, like, flour and water. And then they see this cow in the field and they get the idea, like, wait a second, we could steal this cow's milk. And they start this scheme of every night milking the cow and going back, baking these, like, muffins and cornbread and whatever. And then they go to the town market and – sell these baked goods and they become a huge hit and they start making a ton of money. And those parts of the movie are so sweet. Just like seeing the joy on these early Americans that are tasting like real baked delicious goods for the first time. And it just like, it's very soul affirming and it's a very warm film. And like, you really feel the friendship between these guys. There's no real conflict between them. They just like have each other's backs. They love to bake, very sweet. And then, you know, towards the climax of the film, the wealthy landowner starts to get – because he tastes the baked goods because, you know, they're the big talk of the town. And he starts to wonder like, wait, what's your secret? Why does this taste so good? No one else's muffins taste as good. And then the story goes from there. I was not expecting to like this movie as much as I did, but – I thought it was so refreshing and how like it took its time. It was sweet. It was about male friendship. and like, you, know, there's women in the movie, but they're kind of on the periphery. It's just like about these two guys having each other's back, the joy of like cooking and baking, you know, in this time where the world was so rough, like these guys just have the tightest bond. And it's got this beautiful like Americana soundtrack. And it's just like the sweetest, most pleasant, gentle movie I've seen of the year. And I felt like so much other stuff on my list, whether it's Color Out of Space or Possessor, you know, pretty dark stuff. And I kept coming back to this one. It was just like comfort food and made me feel good. And that's why I had to put it at number two.
1: My number two is the movie Swallow. So the film is about this woman... Uh, yeah her name is hunter i'll always remember that because i'm like what a cool name and it goes really well with like her look i don't know she looks like a hunter but hunter is not from like the wealthiest bunch and she marries a guy who's like fucking loaded and he's so rich that she doesn't have to like work or anything so she just basically stays at home by herself all day even though she has, like, this, you know, nice-ass house. It's just boring. And I get that, like, I mean, I don't get that because I don't have that experience. But, like, this has happened to, like, some of my, like, friends where, you know, when you get to that point in life where people, like, you know, start building their families and stuff. Like, I, I know people who have, like, just married, like, really rich dudes And they just kind of gave up their careers and everything to be like, yeah, I mean, he's just so rich. I don't need to work anymore. And then they move into these huge houses with, like, white walls and, like, white floors and white sofas. And I'm just like, God, I want you to just fucking fart on everything and disturb this, like, cleanliness. It freaks me out. But that's kind of what happens to her. And it's like she has this really weird relationship with her husband where it's like he's not an asshole, but he's just boring they have like no bond like it's not he treats
0: her like another expensive piece of furniture like he doesn't talk to her she's just there
1: yeah like she doesn't have anyone to confide in like she you would think like okay she has no friends doesn't really have any family and his family is just horrible to her and they treat her in that same way just like she's oh she's just there like she has like no she's not seen as an individual and she's just like stuck in this house and Uh, One day she eyes a marble (laughs) and like swallows the marble and just, I guess like it, it makes her, you know, feel something. And then she starts to challenge herself to swallow other things around the house. And, you know, she becomes very proud of herself, and she makes this like beautiful little collection of her little swallowed things that she poops yes, out because she collects
0: them from the toilet,
1: <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, I know it's like it's so sick. and i I love stuff like that where I'm like, you're in this fancy house. You know, these people are rich as fuck, and this woman's just digging in her shit to find the push pin she swallowed um to put on her like very clean and fancy like bedside table. <laughs> But basically she ha- she gets pica which is a true mental illness that you know we there are folks who just have this want to like swallow and or eat things that that they should not be eating like you know dirt or cement glass things like that. But I love stuff like that. This really brought me into like my obsession with that show that's like my strange obsession and there is no. you know like hey I I love eating comet
2: that, that's <laughs> you know. I felt so kind of guilty watching this movie, to be honest, because I've watched that show so many times in sort of a, I guess, an ironic sort of way. Oh, look at these people. Like, oh, that's crazy. These are crazy people. Like, why would they do this? And watching this movie, I actually felt like I understood. I understood it more than the TLC mm-hmm. show. Help me understand. Oh, yeah.
1: The TLC shows just like, look how crazy this is. Well, I also don't think this movie is very subtle in
0: its themes. Like, she goes to a therapist and says out loud, like, I do it because I have a sense of control when I do it. And I have no other control in- over my life in any other way. Right. Like, it's very upfront about that.
2: Which is, I don't know. That was refreshing to me kind of. No, I liked that. You know?
1: I got excited for her. Like... You're like, yeah, girl, take control of your body. What other shit can you swallow? Go for it. That's
0: my favorite part of this movie is like, like you're proud of her. <laughs> yeah, from the outside looking in, you would think and it is. It's like this body horror where you're like, Oh God, you know, that push pin is gonna fuck her up its entire way down her digestive track. Right. Um, and you're like cringe watching her like eat these like sharp objects. But the reason she's doing it and like the release she gets, this is like euphoric face that she makes when she like challenges herself and swallowing something dangerous.
1: Yes, and she succeeds.
0: <laughs> yeah, and especially in the scene like late in the movie, she's like in this dirty hotel room Eating a mound of mud off Ugh. of like this nasty bedspread and just and it watching looks trash just like TV, some
1: like old brownies, but you're like, "Whoa, what's dirt!"
0: <laughs> and I'm just thinking, like, "Yeah, you go, girl! Like, get it. <laughs> Stuff as much dirt down your gullet as you can. You earned this." Um,
2: I, I found know. that very subversive. I, mean, I guess I found it like I see what you're saying. Where I was like, "Okay, at least you feel something. Like, you're not in this sterile environment where you're." this housewife that nobody cares about, like at least you are doing your own thing, but it also was sad that that's where she needed to go to feel. Oh yeah. Release, for sure. You know?
1: Yeah. Cause she's essentially like destroying her body like internally.
0: <laughs> and she's pregnant, which uh, adds to the danger of it.
1: Right. Which uh, I felt, hor- uh, I didn't feel that horrible. I was like, I don't really care. <laughs> I'm like, keep eating your batteries. <laughs> like, you know, whatever. But yeah, like, and I think, like, for a while, you're just kind of like, will we ever understand Hunter and, like, who she is and where she's coming from? And then you do, and it's horrific, and it's very sad.
2: Yeah. Yeah, the scene with her dad was, um, that was pretty tough. Tough, oh. yeah. Because yeah. he didn't have any answers, really, for her. So, I don't know it's how hilarious. she's going to get closure from that. Also, got to say, I know,
0: like, her life is fucking miserable and lonely, but... I'd say along with Emma, this is like my favorite production and costume design I've seen in a movie all year. Like, it's just the environment is sterile, but it's this really beautiful modernist uh, architecture with these very crisp lines. And she's wearing these like kind of June Cleaver, like housewife. Yes. Drag outfits, and it's just so beautiful.
1: It feels like she's in this like bomb shelter almost, like that a rich person would have made. Where it feels like I kept, I'm like, is this modern time, or are we in like a really futuristic place, or are we like in this very clean, like 1950s style something? It's like a blend of everything. It's
0: If it was a little kitschier, it would look like Pee-wee's Playhouse. Like, it's almost that artificial. Yeah.
1: Especially the reds. There's a lot of, like, fun red hues. Very Pee-wee Herman. (laughs) And that cool-ass haircut she has, which they totally, like, shit on her for. And I'm like, whatever. She looks awesome. Everyone shut up. But, yeah, I liked it. I just like the feeling that it gave me because I'm like, who would have thought that you could watch a movie about someone, like, you know, literally, like, swallowing stuff and digging it out their shit and just being like, awesome like and i love that it you know it it is filthy in that way that it's such a clean environment and she's just doing this like very like filthy thing um in that clean environment and i love i just love that
0: well the next two movies are both me and i don't think either of y'all have seen these so i'm gonna kind of go quickly my number two for the year is this movie called we are little zombies please ignore the zombies part of the title It is not a zombie film. We actually talked about that with um, zombie child earlier this year. Like we don't have much enthusiasm for the genre anymore. So maybe that's what's keeping people away from watching this, but it is a Japanese coming of age comedy about four orphans who meet at their parents' funerals all at the same time. Their parents are getting cremated at the same facility and they decide to run away from their lives and form a punk band um, called the Little Zombies. The overriding aesthetic of this film is very much like Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. It's like a video game that they're like living through. To form the band, they have to acquire instruments. Um, So, like, one of the players is the drummer, right? So, he has, like, a walk that he's going to drum on. So, they have to go to his burnt-down home to retrieve the walk from, like, the rubble, from where the fire where his parents died. And it's treated like a video game level. There's, like, bosses and challenges and, like, objects to acquire. And what really won me over with this is that video game aesthetic is pushed to such a far extreme that like every single shot and image and decision and scene is just so exciting. Like every idea it has makes you want to shout like, that's so fucking cool. <laughs> like it's just, it made me giddy the entire time. And the, the songs are very sweet. There's only three songs in the film, but all three of them hit really hard and are like very catchy. I keep getting stuck in my head and the movie just never runs out of ideas. It's, it's just constantly exciting um, it's got kind of that twee thing that I like. I, I know that's like a controversial aesthetic, but like, or at least divisive aesthetic. The the surface details are very manicured and beautiful and artificial, and then underneath that, these kids are like mourning their parents' deaths and like the fact that they're alone in this world. So like, there's this deep well of pain beneath how fun and beautiful the movie is, and the songs are about how they can't feel emotion because they're kind of like in like the numb part of grief. They just can't feel anything. So they, they sing these songs that are kind of like anti-emo is how they, how they describe it. They're just like completely dead emotionally. That's why they're called zombies. It's just a very exciting film, like beautifully colorful. The songs are really energetic and fun. And it just has a ton of ideas and a lot of like comedic gags that all work. Um, and I was just left like... Full, like my heart um, meter in a video game metaphor was just full by the end of it. Yeah, highly recommend We Are Little Zombies.
1: Yeah, it looks like a lot of fun, like a pop music like video kind of vibe that like a lot of movies you like, Brandon, tend to have.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's true. I like things that look like they're coated in candy. Yes. Um, this is very much in that <laughs> wheelhouse. My number one move of the year is a lot scuzzier. It's not like candy at all. It's called Ask Anybody. It is the only movie I could think of that has its own podcast and Instagram attached to it because it's this larger art project. I saw it at a queer film festival earlier this year. I think most places it's played has been online queer film festivals. And I would normally hold this off until it got like an official wide release. But I don't think that can ever happen. So I'm just going to pull the trigger now. Ask anybody. It started off as an Instagram project. It was like collecting images and promotional materials from gay pornography from the golden era of porn and the movie what it does is it collects images like montages from I think 125 maybe even more hardcore gay films from the 60s through the 80s and creates a narrative out of them and like whenever I talk about like porn being art on the show which i I think i've done more than i should be allowed to um (laughs) you know one of the things we talk about is like it's documentary like these are like documents of a time they're very low budget movies so people are showing up how they actually dress they're non-professional actors so they're kind of acting in their own casual persona a lot of the time and what this movie does is it constructs a day in the life. Like it takes that idea that those are documentary pieces of art and it constructs a day in the life of a gay man post stonewall, like from waking up in the morning to going out in the street and cruising for sex, uh, going to work, uh, cruising for sex at the bathhouses, at construction sites. I mean, obviously it's from pornos, so there's a lot of sex and then it culminates in this big party where like the community that you've been seeing in all these disparate locations comes together and celebrates. And that's like the big emotional swell of the film and made me very like in awe of like the fact that a movie like this could hit me in the emotions. But I think the thesis of it is that, you know, before queer stories were allowed to be told in mainstream movies, they were being told in these like hardcore films, kind of like horror Porn is one of those things that just sort of sells itself. Like it's a way to get movies made so you can see what a gay person with an incredibly busy sex life, (laughs) uh, what that would look like at the time by constructing this sort of like makeshift collage protagonist. Like it's almost like a hundred different men playing the same character from like waking up in the morning next to their partner to having sex with strangers and then going back to their apartment um with their partner and going back to bed. Mm-hmm. Like you get like the full day in the life of that Ooh. kind of archetype of a person. So it's just really beautiful, it's really transgressive. Obviously there's a lot of like on-screen explicit sex, but it's more than that and it's very communal and just beautiful and one of those movies that like really cuts through I think the like corporatization of art and filmmaking right now. You know, every few days right now there's a hot take that goes around on Twitter about how sex is useless in movies and like never adds to the plot and then you have at the same time you know disney taking over every major filmmaking company and like cutting sex out of every mainstream movie so it's kind of fun to watch this film that's like all sex tells a story and like documents a community in its prime really beautiful stuff highly recommend it where you can watch it
1: um where is this available
0: what I would recommend is following, ask anybody on Instagram mm-hmm. or on Twitter, and they will always announce when the next film festival date is.
1: Oh, cool.
0: I think it is a legal piece of art. I don't know that it ever will get full distribution, although, the American Genre Film Archive, which is AGFA, they do great work in preserving like cheapo horror films and just genre stuff that's sort of been lost to time. They have taken over the theatrical distribution of this movie. It's just theaters are kind of shut down right now, so I don't know what that means. I would also recommend checking out their podcast, where I believe they're going episode by episode, reviewing in full every one of the hardcore films that is shown in the movie. Oh
1: my god, this is amazing. So it's a
0: very big academic project, yeah. uh, sort of elevating this genre of filmmaking that is... You know, seen as disreputable and kind of useless and disposable, they're like really pointing out that it is a genre that had its own storytelling style before, you know, mainstream movies bothered telling gay stories. And, you know, it's a lot more real and grittier than like, I don't know, Netflix is the prom or whatever other Ryan Murphy project they're putting on every two weeks.
1: Oh, God, the damn prom.
0: <laughs> it's a very different version of like queer sexuality and very like recognizably true to life. I'm going to check it out, Brandon.
1: I am. I'm really (laughs) excited about this. (laughs) Great way to bring in 2021 with Ask Anybody.
0: And the final film we're going to talk about today is the only movie that was on all three of our lists.
1: Oh, my God. Um,
0: It is my number seven, and it is James and Brittany's number one. Fair to say, at least among the three of us, our favorite movie of the year collectively.
1: What?
2: Yeah, I think this is it. I am so excited (laughs) to hear this. Woo! What was your number one? Well, Brittany, me. Yes. dear
0: skin. That's it. Also on John Waters' favorite movies of the year list as well.
1: Oh God, I feel very validated right now. So I, I rewatched it again um,
2: earlier and it holds up. I, I was scared it wouldn't. Like it would be a one-off. Like once I kind of knew what the gags were and what the joke was. But it's totally it, not true. It just true. gets
1: better. It's
2: so, <laughs> oh, it's so much fun. And I actually was thinking this might have been the last movie I saw in the theaters, which is wild. Yeah. The week
0: after Mardi Gras, you, me, and Hannah all went to French Film Fest. Uh, There's an episode of the podcast where we talked about this movie and the other films we saw at the Film Fest. Um, but that was like very shortly before coronavirus shut down all the theaters. And it was a raucous screening full of old people. Um, <laughs> the three of us were laughing very hard, along with a few other weirdos uh, interspersed throughout the crowd.
2: I think that's interesting that right after they shut down the theaters and maybe that is why this is like had such a strong connection with me because that experience of going to see it in the theater, laughing at this thing that other people weren't laughing at and not getting and having such a great time is exactly why we go to the movies. And that stuck with me.
1: I was like kind of... I don't know, like whenever I first watched it, I was like, okay, fuck, I love Jean Jardin, So I'm already on board. I love this whole jacket idea. But it was so, it's such a beige movie. <laughs> like everything is like, it feels like you're looking in like a Boy Scouts like closet or something. Like
0: It's the color of deerskin. It's just that brown tan <laughs> look.
1: Yes. It's like 50 shades of beige. And <laughs> I was like, you know, typically I'm not that much into movies that have that you know that kind of color scheme i guess like it's not something i gravitate towards so that's why i loved it even more that i was like holy shit that this like really adds to like the insanity of this and i love that
0: well it's kind of the opposite of what you were saying i like which is that artificial like candy coated color pops this is a very macho masculine film and it is about the absurdity of a. philosophical commitment to machismo as like a guiding life force. So in in the film, Desjardins plays a man who buys an expensive deerskin jacket. Uh, You soon learn that he could not afford this jacket. He is like recently divorced, having a midlife crisis and takes out an absurd amount of money to buy this jacket. And the seller throws in a digital camera as like lanyap, And he walks around this like small town, staying in this shitty hotel and um films just bullshit like he films himself posing in the mirror with this jacket that he loves (laughs) he films the mountains and like other rugged masculine things he can find around but he's just like bullshitting and adele hanel plays a bartender who also is a hobbyist film editor And he sort of like ropes her into this like go nowhere movie project that's just about how cool his jacket is. (laughs) And it escalates from there, where he decides he wants to be the only person in the world who owns any jacket and starts killing people and filming that crime um, as he removes their jackets and leaves the bodies where they are. And Adele Hanel is more into it than he initially expected her to be. And the two of them (laughs) like create this movie together that is about his vanity, his like macho love of himself and his own killer style as he calls it
1: his deer skin so gross
0: (laughs) yeah and the and the jacket also has a life of itself it's kind of like in fabric last year this Mm -hmm. is like the male version of that film where like the jacket is machismo personified and like talks to him uh, and has a life of its own
1: it's so funny too because like not only does he have like this deer skin jacket, but he finds like other deer skin <laughs> products, like a deer skin hat. And when he like sees it, he's like, oh deer skin. Deer skin pants and every re- it's just so funny to me. And I'm like, whoa, this is this is great. I didn't even know deer skin was like something that was made into clothes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I actually remember after watching this going home and looking up, like getting my own deer skin jacket just because it's it really like
1: eight thousand dollars
2: <laughs> there it's very for an authentic one it's like very expensive it's just like really? that, that killer style man
0: <laughs> and what i love too is like it's, it's kind of making fun of itself for making an entire movie about a deerskin jacket like because there's a movie within the movie and because he is this like auteur bully who's like taking all the credit and like making the movie about how awesome he is and how awesome his jacket is like, the movie's kind of making fun of itself the entire time. Uh, and it's a, it's kind of about the auteur theory in a, in a weird way, too.
2: Yeah, and I, I thought the director was being very meta and kind of, like, being critical of himself. Being like, yeah, this is, like, kind of what auteurs, what directors do. There's a whole group of people, like editors and all these people that really make the film happen. But we take all the credit, and it's our ego, you know. The movie is absurd, but it's also pretty smart in what it's trying to say. And I I think what I really, really like about it is it could have fallen into, you know, they had the like kind of cringe comedy or like... Bad on purpose. Yeah, it could have fallen into like irony. But the film is not like really, to me, like ironic. It's absurdist. But it's taking an absurd topic. Uh, an absurd plot very seriously. And I think that is a style that I really, really like. You come up with this absurd plot, like this guy wants to be the only one in this town with a jacket, but you don't undercut it by making it so bad it's good or making it ironic or what. You take it like very sincerely. So the film has like a strange heart, even though it is like completely bad shit. And I, I think there's a telling line towards the end where where she says to him, like, yeah, you know, your movie is about, like, people like stupid things. Which is true. And, like, I like this movie in a sense because it's stupid. But it's, like, more than that. It's There's, like, a, a strange heart to this that I think, for me, like, brings it up to my, like, number one of the year. If it was just jokes, uh, it wouldn't – have like landed as hard for me it has a strange charm about it i don't know i think that
0: that is all in adele hanel's character the editor totally i think her rise to meeting him on his level and kind of overtaking the project i think is like where the heart of the film is and like where it gets (laughs) genuine i agree yeah it's still funny but
1: i just always love a movie where an inanimate object like can possess somebody yes (laughs) that's that's what stole it for me like when he was like having these jacket conversations by himself, like those were my favorite parts.:
0: And this director has like an affinity for that kind of topic. Like his first breakout movie was called "Rubber," and it was about a killer car tire. But it doesn't kill you by running you over. It kills you with its own telekinetic mind right. powers. Mm. Or uh, his movie coming out this year in 2021 is called Mandibles," and it's about a giant housefly, like a <gasps> housefly the size of a pig. Whoa. That's going to be good. Yeah, it looks really fun. We'll probably talk about it again when we do our best of 2021 episode.
2: <laughs> Another thing that's kind of come up a couple times this episode is like, and I think I've been bringing it up, but like runtime. You know, this movie's an hour and 15 minutes, which feels absolutely perfect mm-hmm. for a movie about a deer skin jacket. And I, I, I feel like I used to really be into the whole kind of bloated. It has a lot on its mind. It's a little messy. I used to be drawn to those sort of movies. And I think what's changed for me is like now I like more something like this, like Skin, where, yeah, it's a ridiculous premise, but it's tight. It knows the story wants to tell. It tells it quickly. And then it's you're out of there. I, I don't know. I've been really drawn to those movies, especially this year.
0: Yeah. uh Deerskin, our number one movie of the year collectively. I don't know if that's going to change. As more ballots come in, we have at least three more people who are going to weigh in who contribute to the website, and we are going to be talking about our favorite films of 2020 all month. I will link in the show notes the hashtag for that, where you can see all those things in one go, including this episode, which will have James's 1 through 20 listed out, and all the other entries that come in afterwards. And we'll be back next week. Uh, We're going to talk about Snowpiercer, me and Boomer. And then the week after that, all three of us will come back and probably talk about more best of 2020 stuff. Because why not? A lot of great movies came out this year, even though theaters were kneecapped by the pandemic. There's been a lot of great movies to catch up with, and things I actually never knocked off my watch list. And I'm sure y'all feel the same way.
1: Yeah, you know, it's a good point because, like, I think this year, like, I I hear tons of people that are like, "Yeah, like, movies sucked." And I'm like, what the, I mean, have y'all not been like actually watching movies? Cause there's a lot of good shit that came out. Yeah, this I, year.
2: I, I don't know. I was thinking about that. Like was 2020 a good year for movies. And I look at my list and there's a lot of good movies on here. And like we talked about earlier, I mean, maybe not being able to go to the theater makes these movies have less of an impact. But to say that this was a bad year for film, that's just not the case.
0: Yeah, I miss the theater, and I miss recording with y'all in person. Same here. We'll, We'll get back to normal eventually. Movies
2: will always be there.
0: Yeah. Community is the part that we're missing.
2: Yep.